Hello, everyone. This is Altered Mobility, where we talk about the history of publicly available transportation spaces, the ways we get around, and what surrounds us in the public sphere. In this episode of Altered Mobility, we're on episode two of a three-part series about two first ladies who have influenced public spaces and transportation, Lady Bird Johnson and Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. And I say Onassis because we talk about more than her years as first lady. I am Cheryl Gross Glazer, your host, and I will give a little warning before we even start with our snapshot of equity. Uh, This is a little trigger warning. We are discussing some matters in these three episodes that could be upsetting or inappropriate for children or uh, or individuals with triggers due to mentions of violence and um, close relationships. Okay, so pouring my Zeke's coffee here, a mix of their Guatemala and red, white, and black blends. Love this. It adds a little depth. I don't know. Could that be crazy? Yes. Would I even notice it if somebody gave me Guatemala and they would they say, does it have a little something else in it? I don't know. I don't know. I don't give myself that much credit. Mm. But it sure does taste good. Okay, so our moment in equity for episode two of our series, um, we are going to travel backward in time from the period we're covering, uh, the period of the 1960s and 70s, and we're going to look at the late 18th through mid-19th centuries to peer into history uh, that took place at the White House. Remember, we're covering First ladies, so we have two women who both uh, had their official residence, at least, at the White House. Remember, we started in our last episode with housing segregation patterns, um, at first established in law and contract, but perpetuated to this day through patterns of wealth and poverty. And those patterns continued and already entrenched structural racism. So our moment of equity here acknowledges the fact that it was enslaved individuals who actually built the White House. Uh, And not solely enslaved individuals, I will say that. The Washington Post reported in 2020 that, and I quote, For the men who quarried the stone, laid the bricks, and built the executive mansion, it is just their first names that are known. Abraham, Amos, Cato, George, Emmanuel, Moses, Nace, Salisbury, Thomas. For most, and that's end quote, for most of these now more than 200 identified enslaved laborers, only first names are known. A small wage was paid to their owners, (laughs) Uh, and the owners were responsible for their clothing, blankets, and medical care. From the White House Historical Association exhibit, I quote, many slave owners who appear in the surviving documentation came from Southern Maryland, specifically Prince George's, Charles, St. Mary's, and Calvert counties. Each of these counties had convenient access to the Potomac River, making it easy to transport enslaved people upriver to work on federal construction projects like the White House. 
Some slave owners in Northern Virginia also supplied enslaved labor to Washington, D.C., end quote. And remember, Washington, D.C. is right across the river from Virginia. And at the time, there were still parts of Virginia that were technically Washington, that were Washington, D.C., but that's another episode. Uh, while some owners were wealthy, others labored beside those they owned, as did immigrant laborers. But those individuals who were not enslaved were paid more than that sum uh, that would be paid to the owners of the enslaved. The White House Historical Association has identified more than 307 children, women, and men who worked in some way beginning in 1792 and through several administrations relating to the building and then the staffing of the president's house. And I didn't want to say anything more about Virginia because Virginia in 1836 uh, is given back uh, its portion of Washington, D.C., which was originally um, formed out of parts of Maryland and Virginia, but now only has parts of the f uh, what was Maryland. Okay, and that is actually a nice episode. Okay. So as we begin episode two of three in this series, we are in the early months of 1962. It's the second year of the Kennedy administration, second full year, and Lady Bird is the wife of the vice president and former Senate majority leader, and as we know, Jackie is first lady. Uh, to recap just a little bit, just a tiny bit, Jacqueline Kennedy is in her early 30s. She has a daughter who is about four years old at this point. Actually, in 1962, she's probably more like six because she was uh, born in 56, so she's five or six years old, and she has a one-year-old uh, son, uh, because I believe he was born in November. Anyway, she's become unexpectedly popular with the public. She was not originally thought to be popular, and she's popular both in the U.S. and internationally. She's known for her fashion sense and her association with the arts and historic preservation. What's not known is that she spent a lot of time actually not quite living at the White House. They had a property in Virginia where she um, did a lot of horseback riding, took the kids, had a lot of quiet time when she wasn't on international travel. It was not the closest marriage, let's just say that. And her husband very much continued his extracurricular activities, if you know what I mean, while he was president. Okay, so in 1962, Lady Bird is 50, so she's not quite, um, she's not 20 years older, but like 17 years old or something like that. Her daughters are now 13 and 16, and in contrast with Jackie, and with few exceptions, uh, Lady Bird has always put her husband's position ahead of her family, and she's a real trooper about that, even sometimes being kind of humiliated in front of uh, friends or his colleagues. She prefers not to call attention to herself. She's not known for her style, but she's very smart. She's politically savvy. She's very welcoming. She's a great host. And she is um, 
not historically been given credit for as much as she should be, probably due to this very kind of 1950s womanly ideal that she always strives for, and it kind of masks her accomplishments, in my opinion. Okay, so on Valentine's Day, 1962, February 14, 1962, uh, First Lady Jackie Kennedy gave a televised tour of the White House entitled A Tour of the White House with Mrs. John F. Kennedy. You can still see it on YouTube. We do have it in the show notes, but it's pretty easy to find. It aired nationally on two of the three TV networks. So the three TV networks, you would have watched pretty much anything on in the evening. Maybe you had one to three local channels, but they didn't have any kind of real like entertainment shows in the evening. So she's, she's on, for most people, this is what they can watch, two out of the three networks. And later that week, the third network aired uh, the TV special. Um, and remember, generally, there's fewer media outlets. There's maybe one or two newspapers per media market, with New York being, you know, a big exception. I'm not sure. D.C. might have had more papers at that point. Um, three, the three national networks, right? You didn't have the Internet or anything like that. So it was a big deal, very big deal. Uh, this TV special attracted a very large audience, and the tour showed off the restoration of the White House. Uh, many historic artworks, furniture, decorative objects, even wallpaper. And the First Lady was very much involved in the restoration project, and she actually won an honorary Emmy Award. All right, a little sip of coffee here. And then I'm going to pour. Pour just a bit more. Okie dokie. Mm, yummy, yummy. Yes. Zeke's coffee. Love it. Okay. Uh, so the First Lady had traveled quite a bit in, in Europe, particularly in France. She did a year abroad in France. And her knowledge of history, languages, and cultures, uh, I believe she was fluent in four languages, French, Italian, Spanish, at least doable. And um, she had a real appreciation for beauty in a historical context, excuse me, and for how France and even Germany were actively preserving or rebuilding architectural treasures after World War II. And quite unusual for her generation, Jackie had spent considerable time abroad um, as a student and as a, a traveler. But remember also, unique among generations, that greatest generation that fought World War II, which included, by the way, her husband, um, and who had, you know, right after fought in Korea and those who had carried out the Marshall Plan, these young men and women, um, most of whom were not from economically advantaged backgrounds, who had grown up in the Depression, um, had spent quite a bit of time abroad also, albeit during wartime. And to quote from the historic preservation legacy of Jacqueline and Kennedy Onassis, uh, put out in the Forum Journal and Forum Focus, uh, produced by the National Trust for Historic <laughs> that was a faux pas National Trust for Historic Preservation Leadership Forum in two thousand six. 
And I quote, Americans who came of age with the Kennedys had fought on European soil and witnessed the rebuilding of old world cities under Truman's Marshall Plan, 1948 to 1952, end quote. And I would go even further to those who had fought in Europe and saw the buildings and public spaces left standing amidst the ruins. So there was actually, in some ways, um, an appreciation for how tied Europe and its treasures were to the U.S. In a way, perhaps there is not now among all sectors of the U.S. And plus there was a draft. So, you know, young men... um, of every socioeconomic, ethnic, racial background had served in World War II, and um, a good sampling of women had served in the auxiliary corps. So this is who, to whom Jackie is speaking. Okay, in her in her special. So the day after this television special airs, uh, Jackie seems to have begun what became a significant legacy in the historic preservation of public spaces. Certainly in 1962 she would not have considered herself an activist or what she was even then becoming, which would uh, we would call today a celebrity activist. Um, when the TV special with Jackie's, you know, Jackie's White House tour airs on February 14th, 1962, and I quote from that um, National Historic Preservation Forum document. First, a little coffee. And I quote, Plans for raising much of the Lafayette Square neighborhood, the buildings surrounding the square, had been underway in order to make way for construction of a new courts building and a new executive office building. End quote. These plans had been approved by the General Services Administration, which takes care of the buildings and operations of the federal government. Um, So they've been approved by the GSA, that's the General Services Administration, and the President. So we're talking about that square block, an immediate neighborhood, right across the street, right across Pennsylvania Avenue from the White House. Um, Today, this is a pedestrian, bike, and scooter-friendly street that's closed to all vehicular traffic except when official vehicles are going in or out of the White House. Or, I should say, officially approved, because I don't really know who goes there. Um, (laughs) Plans to alter what had been originally a a residential neighborhood, or when I say originally, when um, D.C. was first established the where these homes were no longer being lived in anymore um and raising the neighborhood destroying it basically was being discussed um as early as the early decades of the 20th century but there was the depression you know if it didn't happen by the end of the 20s it didn't happen all through the depression or through world war ii um if you look at schools on the east coast they're either built in 1929 those cornerstones were 1929 or those schools came up in like the 60s you know um unless you're in the suburbs and then you see schools in the 50s but all through the depression and world war ii uh there's there's not much happening in terms of construction 
So those townhouses uh, that surround Lafayette Square were originally homes for the wealthy and politically connected, and slowly but surely they had been transformed into offices. Um, Concrete plans, no pun intended, for new federal office buildings and the destruction of the 19th century townhouses had been approved during... um, the Eisenhower administration before the Kennedys moved in. And I will say in terms of style, Jackie Kennedy had no love for her predecessor, Mamie Eisenhower, who was also personally um, kind of mean to her. And I would say if you look at JFK, we could do a whole, you know, you could do a whole biography of him. He certainly is someone with a lot more style than Eisenhower. Um, was ever known for, but it's also known for some other things. Okay, so another bit of background information for both Jackie's and Lady Bird's efforts is that this is the age of so-called urban renewal. Out with the old and the decrepit, even if it's charming, and in with the new and ugly, often displacing um, people's neighborhoods in the process. And we saw that even in our West Side Story episode. Um, And again, I quote from the National Historic Preservation Legacy of Jack Willing Kennedy Onassis, which appeared in the National Trust for Historic Preservation Leadership Forum. And I won't say the whole thing again, even though I think I do quote again. Okay, and I quote, in the 1950s, urban renewal became America's version of the Marshall Plan. While intended to save our declining cities, In actuality, it brought displacement and destruction. Whole neighborhoods and ways of life were loaded into dump trucks and carted away. An unsettling viewpoint was evolving. Americans were conflicted between their desire for progress and their comfort with the past. But now we have a first lady who appreciates the past, and she's devoting resources to historic restoration. And she's sparking a popular appreciation for historic buildings and places. And remember, this is a time of great white flight from the cities. So it's no mean feat to be sparking appreciation for anything in the middle of a city. Um, Before I talk about the record of the First Lady's involvement with Lafayette Square, let me just very briefly talk about uh, the square itself, um, because it really could be a future episode in itself. Um, And there's so much, so much we could discuss in future episodes about the planning of Washington, D.C., from the public squares to the height restrictions, terrible to the original plans, terrible segregation. I mean, but so, so interesting. But I will try to stick with this particular square unless some topic is necessary to the context. And we'll go through this pretty quickly. So again, as I said, Lafayette Square, located right across Pennsylvania from Avenue from the White House. Uh, the square itself is one whole city block. And it's a park. It has grass, flowers, trees, benches, and a famous, quite prominent, now controversial, as it should be, statue of Andrew Jackson on horseback, which faces 
the White House. And I say controversial because there's so much to be controversial about Andrew Jackson, what with his terrible conduct toward Native Americans, his slave owning. I mean, there's just, there's other stuff too, but that goes into a different podcast. Okay, so the square... Um, really feels like an extension almost of the White House grounds, almost like it's the public part of the White House neighborhood. Um, and that's because for most, for about the last 10 years, Pennsylvania Avenue between Lafayette Square and the White House has been closed to automotive traffic and open to pedestrians and cyclists. So you feel almost like you're in the public part of those White House grounds. Okay. And it seems to attract many more people who you, who use both the square and Pennsylvania Avenue right there as a thoroughfare linking different parts of D.C. because those avenues named after states do go on diagonals. Um, and, I, and I would say it probably has more of a 19th century feel today than, than it did uh, during the most of the 20th century because, or, all, yeah, pretty much all of the 20th century, um, because you don't have that vehicular traffic. You don't have horses and buggies, but um, it's a slower pace. It's nice and open feel. It's, it's a much safer feel. So I would say it's brought that 19th century feel back. And sometimes, and this varies very much by presidential administration and frequency, Pennsylvania Avenue does get closed to the public entirely when, when stuff is going on at the White House or people are uh, leaving, coming and going with their vehicles. Um, I have to admit I haven't been around the neighborhood as much during the Biden administration, so I really can't say it's been open every time I've been there, but that's just a sampling. Um, I did feel like during the Trump administration it was closed more than during the Obama administration, but um, <coughs> I do want to say when I've been there around during the Biden administration, it feels the most open it ever has, but that could be because my sample is not representative, so I don't know. All right, just needed a little coffee there. So although people do sit on the benches in the square or there's places to, you know, get lunch nearby, so it's a really nice place in the spring, even summer, to, to sit and eat your lunch and watch the tourists in their natu na natural habitat, you know, seeing the, the White House. Um, this public space mainly serves from a transportation perspective as a pedestrian or walking thoroughfare, you always see people walking through Lafayette Square, more pre-COVID for office workers in downtown D.C., but still, even now, quite a bit. Um, and it's also a good path to first viewing the White House and going there, you know, tour to tour the neighborhood, um, to go see the building, and for taking pictures of the White House. I mean, you see tons of tourists all the time taking pictures there. And um, sometimes I've seen people on the, you know, an early morning when it's almost foggy and the red um, begonias you see near the White House are so vivid. Other times it's a beautiful day and it's sunny and you know people are seeing it and they're not necessarily going to see it more than once or maybe only a few times so it's really um 
it brings you to that newness when you are walking through or sitting at the in the square and you see them. It's a really it's a really kind of fun thing. Okay, so for those who have not visited briefly to get a better feel for Lafayette Square, um, there's also permanent protests. Uh, usually lining Pennsylvania Avenue uh, side of the square, um, protests about national, international situations. Um, there are some protests that are themselves permanent, like the, they'll have a tent and they always have someone there, I think even 24-7 with signs out. Um, there's, there's rules about... Um, those protests and whether they can stay and I, I won't go into that right here um, but there's also like these ephemeral very specific protests that you'll sometimes see particularly about international situ situations and sometimes you'll see even like a small group of elderly people carrying signs about something or other so it's it's in a political way, it's a very interesting um, kind of barometer when people gather there for what and how many. Anyway, moving on. For those who have not been there, the square uh, may also be known to most people from its location adjacent to the relatively new large Black Lives Matter plaza also closing off a street, um, and from the tear gassing of Black Lives Matter protesters at Lafayette Square during the Trump administration when uh, that president walked across the square to the outside of St. John's Episcopal Church to hold a Bible. And that church uh, is on the edge of the square on the other side of the street. And I would recommend, if you're going to Lafayette Square, and I'm not going to talk more about the history of it right now, um, but if you haven't been there, for, I would say that the best way to approach the square, to get that beautiful view of the square and the White House and those 19th century townhouse, um, at least facades there, is to get off at Farragut North, that's a red line stop, uh, walk across or just past Farragut Square, uh, down Vermont Avenue, so that you come to Lafayette Square and then for from a for a view of the White House from the corner where St. John's Church is located, and then walk diagonally across the square to the Andrew Johnson, um, I mean Andrew Jackson. That was a they're two different people. Um, I'm going to. All right. Um, and, and then from that vantage point, you know, as you're approaching, you really get a beautiful uh, view of the White House, particularly in the early morning when, it, when it's quiet. And Zeke's, my favorite coffee place, is, is like a half a block away. So, you know, you got to go there and get a coffee. It's a really great place. And fu it's funny because sometimes you'll see like uh, the, the police or, you know, sort of secret service types there, um, or just office workers. And, and that's a nice block, although that neighborhood you could discuss. Out the wazoo, what's happening to it now? Anyway, getting back to Jackie, February 15th, 1962. We're at Lafayette Square. It's the morning after her TV special. She is now super popular. It's well-watched. It's erudite television special. Um, 
I will say one thing that's a little funny. She seems very charming and poised during the special. But I read um, not that long ago that uh, during the the, the breaks during the special, you know, when they would stop filming, she would immediately start smoking. She was very nervous. Okay, so she has her huge White House restoration project behind her. This was tons of work. Uh, she worked with lots of staff and advisor ex experts, raised money. You know, it's all gone off really well. And if you have ever put together any kind of event, even if you have other people helping you, ah, it's like a weight lifted off your shoulders. And she's now proven her popularity on a few fronts. She, that she's popular in her own right. And now, the very next morning, capitalizing on this, uh, on this pa popularity, she sets her sights on Lafayette Square, where the wheels, as we said before, are well in motion to get rid of those townhouses that, and to, to destroy the 19th century feel of the square and build federal office buildings. This also would have included... Um, destroying the famous Renwick building, a large mansion just off the square where the Renwick Gallery is located, a lovely small museum. They have great kind of avant-garde uh, exhibits there, and it's, it's a lovely building to go see. And the Renwick, by the way, was the first building in the United States built specifically to be an art museum. Okay, so... And I quote, uh, she walked past Lafayette Park on February 15, 1962 with David E. Finley, then chairman of the U.S. Commission of Fine Arts, end quote. Finley was also at the time the chairman of the National Trust for Historic Preservation. He had also served as chairman of of the White House Historical Association, and he had previously been the longtime and first director of the National Gallery of Art. So this guy is no slouch. He is well-connected um, in Washington and in its arts community. The U.S. Commission of Fine Arts was described in his Washington Post obituary, obituary as, I quote, a small but scrappy band of crusaders bent on protecting the beauty of Washington, end quote. And Jackie tells Finley that she and the president are not happy about the planned office building remake of the square. And he duly mentions that those bureaucratic wheels are in motion. This is a done deal. Rather than silencing the first lady, she replies that, and I quote, Mr. Finley, these buildings can be preserved and they must, end quote. And let me pause here for a moment to remark that it seems a little suspicious to me, and <laughs> it makes me wonder. It's about 35 degrees that morning, which is pretty cold for Washington, and yes, I looked it up. And she just happens to stroll with Finley, a historic preservation advocate and expert, on that morning after she's super, her super popularity has been proven. Um... We will not know until Jackie's First Lady papers are opened whether this walk and her pronouncement that morning was kind of a planned uh, 
opportunity, a kind of um, structured casual stroll that was already known that it was going to take place and had been in the works for a while. Maybe it was planned like if this White House tour goes well, let's do this and make this announcement then, you know. Uh, there are papers of Jackie Kennedy that will not be available for many years from now, and there could be more detail in those. Uh, during her stroll with fin Finley, Jackie goes on. She's armed with her knowledge of what is happening in Europe to protect historic architectural treasures, and she recommends legislation. She tells Finley her ideas about... Um, and I quote, historic preservation and in doing so put into motion the process that contributed to the enactment of the Historic Preservation Act of 1966. And yes, that's still a few years away. That's me talking, not the quote. Going back to the quote, she told Finley that she would like to have Congress pass a law establishing something on the order of monuments historique in France, end quote, to protect buildings of historical or architectural significance from being destroyed. At that meeting, Finley said that he would talk with Mr. Conrad Worth of the Park Service and ask that he give consideration to strengthening the existing law, end quote. Uh, and that's, that's an inside quote. We're still on the quote. Finley documented this meeting and their discussion in his Memorandum for the Files, dated February 19th, 1962, end quote. So the, after that, the correspondence uh, goes back and forth between Jackie and Finley. Every week or two, there's an official letter, a note to a file on his part, um, This begins with a vote uh, held by the Commission on Fine Arts, which rejected the First Lady's request to revisit the plans for Lafayette Square. Finley, and this is why I say this February 15th stroll is a little weird, Finley dissents from that vote. and it, So you got to wonder whether this is already in the works. He already knows that he's kind of a lone voice, right? I would suspect, but I don't know. Um, and here we learn, you know, that Finley officially agrees with Mrs. Kennedy. The next step is Finley's recommendation that she and the president contact the head of the General Services Administration, uh, and I quote, to request that the architect submit another design, more in keeping with the 19th century architecture of the square. And as anyone knows, till the bulldozers come, there's always, you know, hope. So this is the recommendation, even though the president had already tried unsuccessfully to change the plans, and Jackie, well, schooled in the ways of Washington, though, she takes Finley's advice. I'm going to quote from this article about the letter, because... Uh, A letter from Jackie, written and received when the his First Lady's historic preservation efforts are very well known to the public, and her popularity is well known. Um, and she expresses uh, a desire to stop the office building project and what it's going to do to the square. She's she's 
she's planning to stop this in its tracks. And she's now spending some of her political or popularity capital when she writes this letter. Uh, and I'm going, to, I'm going to read about the letter. Uh, about the letter and some quotes from the letter in a moment. But remember, she's making these veiled threats. She's someone who is, you know, if you said Beyonce, right? She's, she's better known than someone like Beyonce. Um, this, uh, and I quote uh, from this National Park Service, uh, the historic, Historic Preservation Legacy of Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. I'm going to quote uh, a couple of paragraphs here. This March 6, 1962 letter to Putin, the GSA head, may have been the most significant action she took as First Lady and the one with the most lasting effect on historic preservation. It brought the issue of historic preservation to the desk of one of Washington's most powerful decision makers. She pleaded her case for preserving the 19th century feeling of Lafayette Square and asked that Boutin write to the architects and tell them to submit a design which is more in keeping with the 19th century bank on the corner. Jacqueline Kennedy went on to enunciate the White House philosophy. I so strongly feel that the White House should give the example in preserving our nation's past. By stating at the outset of this letter, letter that she was speaking on behalf of the President and herself, what stronger argument could she make? Jacqueline Kennedy wrote that she was not prepared to sit quietly by while the nation's heritage was, and this is quoting from her letter, ripped down and horrible things put up in their place. I simply panic at the thought of this and decided to make a last-ditch appeal. End quote. All right, let's pour a little more coffee while that marinates in your brain. So here's a not-so-veiled threat from someone with public sentiment, popularity on her side and the plans of what the public would see as unfeeling bureaucrats as her adversary. No wonder that she began her advocacy in earnest right after her successful TV special about the historic significance of the White House. She has credibility on this kind of topic. And the public likes her. So this GSA head Poutine then requests a meeting with the architects, and he specifically refers to public sentiment being on the side of historic preservation. The original architects drop out of the project. By the middle of April, so remember we started on February 15th, by the middle of April, Jack, excuse me, has returned from a trip to India and Pakistan, where she got lots of coverage, TV coverage, excuse me. And she writes to Finley that she's excited that her, and I quote, wildest dreams had come true, end quote, that the 19th century atmosphere of the square would be retained specifically, and I quote, demolition of the 19th century buildings and the Renwick building was canceled. 
the houses on the Decatur House side, that's Jackson Place, would be restored, and the vacant lots filled in with houses in a 19th century style. End quote. Game, checkmate, whatever, home run to Jackie. While Jackie had been away on that international trip, the president had contacted another architect, one whose views on historic preservation were much more in keeping with his and the First Lady's ideas. Both Jackie and Jack Kennedy worked closely with this architect, John Carl Warnicke, and the article I've been quoting from attributes the saving of Lafayette Square's surroundings to the three of them. In 1970, the square was designated a National Historic District and placed on the National Register of Historic Places. A member of the Johnson administration at the National Park Service, who had been nominated whilst Kennedy was still in office, stated that, and I quote, There is no question in my mind that Mrs. Kennedy's White House restoration work and her success in Lafayette Square resulted in a tidal wave of preservation activity that cascaded across the country, culminated, culminating in the enactment of the Historic Preservation Act of 1966. End quote. She did not work on pushing through the legislation. She was not, you know, beating down the doors of uh, Congress people. But the public sympathy for her personally, uh, um, you know, certainly after her husband's assassination and the popularity of her, her historic preservation philosophy um, work, no doubt influenced Congress and President Johnson. And we will now uh, talk about that very tragic uh, transition. Oh. First, my coffee. And I, I really feel like I'm sitting there outside of Zeke's where you can see uh, Lafayette Square down the block and that bank she was talking about. It's exciting. Okay. So we're going to talk now about the assassination of JFK briefly and in terms of uh, turning to the circumstances in which both uh, Jackie Kennedy and Lady Bird Johnson found themselves. Uh, while, while her husband was president in mid-summer of 1963, uh, after she had two, she already had two healthy children, Jackie bore a son who lived for less than two days. So for, for much of 1963, for most of that year, going um, into the third quarter of that year, she's pregnant and she thinks she's going to have a healthy baby. Uh, Jack is at her bedside. And I can't imagine having two young children whom you've already told they're going to have a younger sibling, feel the belly, do you feel the baby kicking? Um, you know, they're excited. The press is covering it. So it's not only like your friends and family, you know, but everybody knows. Um, and then she bears a child who lives for less than two days. It's almost like an extended stillbirth, you know? And, and I know, I only know one person who has suffered from a stillbirth, and I actually was pregnant at the time and was at the same midwifery practice, you know, where we were being treated. And it really affected how they uh, 
they treated me at the end of my pregnancy. They were not going to let anyone go um, more than a certain period without being very closely um, monitored or even go without uh, delivering the baby because they were really worried. Um, and I believe stillbirths are, you know, still a very big issue. I was just hearing that the other day. Anyway, so she has almost this extended stillbirth and she's in a, um, she's out of it these two days. She's not even with it. I don't think she ever even um, held this baby. Jack is there. He's by her side now. We don't know, you know, is this more of a public relations thing? Does he feel closer? Is it because it's his son as opposed to when they lost, they had lost Arabella? You know, and he has to be pushed to even show up back at her side. Um, so she loses that baby the end of the summer. I think it was August. Um, and she's in mourning. Who wouldn't be? I, I can't even imagine picking my head up at that point. You know, it, it probably helped to have two young children she at least had to, like, be there for. But she's she's in mourning. She has lost her child. She doesn't really want to do much politically. But he asks her for a special favor to come with him to Texas, um, which has become a state of political opposition to the president. Um, he's kind of winding up a little bit in terms of thinking about, you know, the reelection campaign. And the first lady is very popular. She's um, she attracts favorable media attention. She can boost the prospect of successful fundraising efforts um, and events in Texas during this trip. And if, since she's popular, more people will come out. So it'll look like um, it'll affect press coverage. You know, if they're seen uh, traveling around Texas and shaking hands and all of that, and lots of people are there. So she's not even done mourning this lost child. Um, when she finds herself in that motorcade experiencing gunfire, not knowing if she's going to be dead, and in fact, her husband is shot, what, a foot? A foot and a half from her? Maybe not even, right? She doesn't know if that next bullet is coming for her. She doesn't know if that first bullet could have hit her. She knows nothing. She is in crisis mode when you're not even thinking. That 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 kind of prehistoric part of your brain takes over. She's still in mourning when she's experiencing this, 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 incredible trauma of not only losing her husband, but being in the middle of gunfire um, during that, that famous campaign-like ride, you know, in Dallas. So we all know what happens during that ride um, and the, about the aftermath of the Kennedy assassination. Um, and I will add here that both of uh, Jack and Jackie's deceased children are buried at their father's gravesite, something Jackie pushed for after her husband's assassination assassination, I guess, as a way of remembering these children, um, that people would see them and that, you know, whenever she showed up for anything official or anybody from his family did at his gravesite, that her, her children would also be honored. So now Jackie is exiting. She gets a little while more in the White House. Nobody rushes her out. Um, but she exits first the White House, and she then she exits D.C. She's kind of hounded at her D.C. She's 
loaned a DC house uh, in Georgetown. She's kind of hounded by you know people out there. People feel almost an ownership over her and a sympathy for her, but she wants to be left alone. She returns to Manhattan and to private life, and I would say her life is never really private again. She's just super well-known. She's on the level of a Princess Diana who is always, you know, hounded by the press everywhere uh, for the rest of her life. And this is a good moment now to look at Lady Bird versus, versus Jackie as we transition. Jackie, Jackie's motivation is from herself you know, from her interest in, in beauty, in art, in history, in historic preservation. She's not actively opposing her husband, you know, while he's alive, or supporting him, but she's willing to pursue her own interests in a way that helps him. These are things that are important to her personally. In contrast, Lady Bird is someone... I think much more difficult for a modern woman uh, to comprehend. She may believe in her projects, but her brain is at every moment the handmaiden, if you will, to her husband. It's not that she never spoke up to him or was insistent about anything during her marriage, but she never stood her ground about what she worked on uh, as first lady or about related funding or the disappearance of funding. Lady Bird also attempts to be almost a chairperson in terms of the projects and planning efforts that she took on as First Lady. And before we delve into Lady Bird's projects, what must be remembered is that Lady Bird becomes First Lady. She's 51 years old. She follows not only a beautiful young woman in that role, but a charming one, uh, one whom the public felt personally connected to as Jackie had suffered the loss of a child and she became a widow during her White House years. She's um, she's part of this generation that's you know had this huge common experience of coming back from World War II and Korea, and then having children. Um, she's a widow during those last months in the White House. Jackie's priorities right now are herself, her children, and her husband's reputation. Um, and maybe even her husband's reputation because it's, it's her children's legacy and her children's reputation there. Whereas Lady Bird is always putting that husband, crappy as he is in many ways to her, uh, first front and center in her life. In Lewis L. Gould's book, Lady Bird Johnson and the Environment, he quotes, he quotes, he quotes a high school history teacher in saying, and I quote, uh, what she, referring to Lady Bird, suffers from is having had to follow a goddess, end quote, right? She's this ordinary older woman in many ways and very this courteous southern woman genteel with a southern accent as we're approaching the height of the civil rights movement um she doesn't have the same style or charisma it's a lightweight facade that the press uh completely bought into and stuck with in actuality, however, Lady Bird had finally honed political skills that were unacknowledged and ignored. She had operated a business. 
She had driven many, many times cross-country between D.C. and Texas. She took notes for her husband at countless gatherings. She had entertained for innumerable impromptu dinners for congressmen and senators. She had even run her, her husband's congressional office. But she doesn't have that charisma. She certainly no longer has that young woman's allure. But what she did have, uh, and was known to a few but never embraced by the press in crafting a narrative about her, um, is she ha does have that political acumen. She does know how to kind of work in Washington. But how the press finds her and creates that narrative about her I think did impact how her projects were received during her husband's presidency. In terms of the Johnson marriage, uh, those years in the White House were ones of increasing closeness. Uh, Johnson at the time had very serious health issues. They had friends during these years who were either departing DC or passing away. LBJ comes to feel um, more isolated. He's becoming ever more cognizant that the Vietnam War is destroying his reputation. And he knows that Lady Bird always, and as her top priority, has his back. She advises him on sensitive topics, uh, sometimes even about political plans uh, that he doesn't share with anybody else. Unlike her three immediate predecessors, uh, Jackie, Mamie Eisenhower, and uh, Bess Truman, who didn't interact regularly with the press, Lady Bird makes her own adjustment to uh, kind of the practices of Eleanor Roosevelt's weekly press conferences. Lady Bird hosts informal teas, which morphed into her women doer luncheons. She highlights uh, professional women. And remember, by this time, Lady Bird had herself worked as a member of the press or as the owner of a successful media company and as a prominent politician's right-hand uh, spouse for decades. So she knows how important the press is and she knows how to handle them. She knows how to put others in the spotlight. Um... She's not acknowledged really widely as the person who invented what became the modern office of the First Lady, but she did. The book Hiding in Plain Sight um, by Julia Swig dives deeply into that topic, and the book closely examines Lady Bird's role as advisor to LBJ, as an early environmentalist, as an urban planner, and as an advocate for equity and planning. Um, and Lewis Gold's book also looks into that, into the ac equity aspects of Lady Bird's work. Um, so one could say that the 60s as a cultural phenomenon, they really start with JFK's assassination. That 1950s feel of the early 60s is over. Excuse me. And a year later... Um, after LBJ becomes president with the assassination, when he wins his own election in a landslide, the world is already changing in ways that those uh, Texas residents of the White House 
do not fully comprehend and certainly do not appreciate. They're of an earlier generation, and I would say even uh, Jackie and Jack's generation, as they're as those children of the baby boom are uh, beginning to protest, as the civil rights protests uh, are really heating up, that older generation doesn't always get it. That questioning of authority is not something they're quick to recognize or feel comfortable with. So unfortunately for President Johnson and his wife, uh, his popularity, and maybe in ways, certain ways their popularity, begins to descend and descends uh, on a straight line downward from the moment after that landslide victory. Uh, we're talking about massive opposition that begins to build to the Vietnam War and begins to build from day one after uh, Lyndon's uh, elected. He's not re-elected, of course, because he was first elected as vice president. Um, we're talking about those escalating civil rights protests, unrest in the cities, on campuses, and, and violence and assassinations. Lyndon's legislative agenda is bold, and he is super effective at using um, the idea of President Kennedy's legacy and the sympathy for President Kennedy uh, and what happened to him to get laws passed that would have been impossible uh, to imagine during most of American history and certainly today passing. His legislative accomplishments are profound. I'm talking about the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, as well as great society legislation, uh, most of which was never funded to the extent originally intended. This is a time of startlingly rapid change in attitudes and behavior. So suddenly, whatever respect had been afforded to office holders, including the president in the past, and the leeway to defer to the judgment of Congress and the president, that's fast disappearing. And Lady Bird is at the receiving end of these changes. And as 1965, 64 turns to 65 and to 66 and on from there, she's met more and more with protests wherever she travels. Um, it's really taken a long time, generations, to give Johnson... Uh, his due, if you will, the recognition and acknowledgement for his accomplishments because they were so eclipsed by what was going on with Vietnam that it really took over everything in terms of his, his legacy for a long time. It's almost like a Greek tragedy uh, when, you, when you think of his life. Remember also that this is a time of rising crime of continued white flight out of cities to mainly white suburbs. Uh, there's growing poverty and family deprivation in cities. Structural racism in terms of jobs, mortgage lending practices, educational opportunities. Uh, who is in the middle class and who is impoverished? These are all being questioned and fought against, sometimes in the streets. 
and are being considered civil rights issues in themselves. It is a time when no one is concerned with gentrification. Nobody's concerned with the displacement of poor people that comes with gentrification in cities. And why is that? Because the concern is that everyone with money, everyone who's part of the the tax base, the middle class, and the wealthy, they're moving away from cities and into suburbs. I'm not saying that we still don't have places like the Upper East Side of Manhattan and areas of Washington, D.C. and other cities that are wealthy, but for the most part, there is a huge flight of wealth, middle class wealth and affluence, away from cities into suburbs so that the cities are finding it hard to support themselves and to help those people who are uh, impoverished who live in them. The fear was in those days in, in the mid-60s, in the late 60s, that the cities were dying and that the middle class and wealthy would wholly abandon them. This would slowly begin to change, for, at first in a few cities in the 1970s, uh, but gentrification wouldn't be perceived as a problem uh, at this time because the fear was the dis- disappearance of this tax base. And, and the fear that, that crime rates would only rise and rise and rise, which they did for a long time. So Lady Bird sought to work on projects that complemented those of her husband. And when she, while she's best known for her work with uh, wildflower protection and planting and reduction in roadway uh, the planting of wildflowers and the reduction in roadway uh, billboards that were making, you know, any highway very ugly. Uh, she did do significant work in Washington, D.C. in terms of urban planning. Lady Bird truly believed uh, that being surrounded by beauty and opportunities for recreation, whether in parks or with trees or with playgrounds, makes a significant difference in people's lives, and particularly so for children. Uh, because of Lady Bird's use of language um, as well, I was ex- I'll explain later, she was poo-pooed as a lightweight, even though she was a serious environmentalist. Uh, Liz Carpenter, Lady Bird's longtime press secretary, said, and I quote, as a result of her courageous voice and national following, she put the environment on the, gen- the agenda of every person in public, end quote. And uh, Liz Carpenter said that at the end of her life, um, eulogizing her. Number one. All of Lady Bird's environmental and land use planning work was lumped under the moniker of beautification, which was itself a way of belittling, even delegitimizing her work and her accomplishments. Number two, Lady Bird did not like the use of this word as a shorthand for her efforts. But, number three, Lady Bird took advantage of the widespread use of this term, beautification, because she's both a realist and an experienced political operator, right? She knows, even before this term is really uh, used, she knows that it's better to own that title, that word, that, that label, right? Own it and take it as your own. 
Um, there's there's various examples in the public space, which I won't mention now, that um, where people have done that. And she realized that the fight over wor- a word was not going to end well. It would become all about that fight, right? So she owns it rather than opposes it. Lady Bird's environmental slash transportation Uh, Related kinds of projects were threefold. One, highway scenery and reduction in billboards along highways. Two, environmental awareness. And three, land use and landscape projects to improve the quality of life in D.C.'s poor neighborhoods. Her work to reimagine highway scenery and reduction in billboards along highways resulted in the Highway Beautification Act, uh, and though it was though it was watered down from its original legislative draft, um, this was considered by her husband to be kind of a gift to her, and these efforts were in keeping with the impressive record of her husband. According to the National Park Service, uh, LBJ protected, um, and I quote, wilderness and historic sites. And the Johnson administration created national recreation areas and other urban park sites within a short distance of large cities. And I quote, one moment for me to drink. He expanded the National Park Service system, National Park System, and the Johnson administration's major legislative initiatives include the Wilderness Act, the Land and Water Conservation Fund Act, the Endangered Species Preservation Act, which was a precursor to the Endangered Species Act, the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act, the National Historic Preservation Act, the Highway Beautification Act, and the Clean Air Act. He is a contender for the title of most environmentally active president in U.S. history. Lady Bird encouraged everything from the planting flowers to corporate action on the environment. She spoke about clean air and water, about protecting uh, the beauty of nature, but she emphasized that nature should not be limited to tourists, to a wilderness or a park. Natural beauty for her belonged in every neighborhood. And I do need a little more coffee at this time to recharge. And then I'm going to quote from something. Uh, There's quite a lovely collection of statements made at her memorial service in the U.S. Congress. Remember, her husband had been Senate Majority Leader once upon a time. Uh, The biography included in the booklet from the service reads, and I'm only going to have a short quote here. As a child, Lady Bird Johnson paddled in the dark bayous of Caddo Lake in East Texas under ancient cypress trees decorated with Spanish moss. The sense of place that came from being close to the land never left her, end quote. At a youth conference, uh, conservation conference on natural beauty and conservation in 1966, she told the young people there, and I quote, you will not have reached a maturity until you have tackled a hopeless 
idealistic cause. And you may be surprised to find that it was not so hopeless after all. End quote. And that's really fitting uh, way to introduce uh, what she does because one could say that that exactly describes uh, the work she did and what happened to it. So what Lady Bird never had was enough funding for her neighborhood work projects and land use projects. She never had the desired equivalent to the WPA Works Products Administration that had existed in the Roosevelt years. Um, she couldn't even say publicly, and the people uh, who were, you know, working with her couldn't say publicly that they wanted this grand, excuse me, type of program, which had mainly employed white men during the Depression, although there were, it wasn't only white men, but mostly. It was a political non-starter, even in the 60s, you know, even when people rail against the 60s and how liberal it was. This is not entirely true. Uh, this this massive kind of public um, effort, publicly funded effort, you know, these kinds of projects you had during the Depression, they're already not even in the discussion in the 1960s. And for all that we remember, the lofty war on poverty of the Johnson administration, um, which is why in the mid-60s Lady Bird is looking to improve um, D.C. neighborhoods and a lot of its poor residents, particularly African-American citizens, there was really no war on poverty. We basically had a few skirmishes against poverty, uh, which certainly wouldn't do as a slogan to motivate anyone. But wars take massive amounts of funding and directed effort, and um, that never happened. That never happened. Uh, by two years into the Johnson presidency, and certainly by three years in, both appropriations to fight poverty, even for neighborhood projects, and private money were disappearing. Uh, we have race riots, we have tension, we have protests against the Vietnam War, and the big money that's, you know, at all in sympathy is kind of backing away in the face of uh, crime and, and violent protests. And we have Lady Bird very much concerned uh, about her husband's health, his heart problems. Um, she's expecting and she's very much desiring that he won't run for second full term. She always has that D.C. end date in the back of her mind that they're going back to Texas. So she does this work, but her true heart is, is not there in D.C. So her spark for the type of work that she takes on uh, in D.C. and elsewhere came from an unlikely source. It comes from Stuart Udall, uh, Secretary of the Interior in both the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. He very much likes her. He's a former congressman from Arizona. Lady Bird and Udall uh, traveled extensively throughout the mountain states of the West. They went um, fly fishing, hiking, and rafting together. Uh, re remember that Lady Bird grew up exploring nat nature, right, in the rural South. She takes lots of car rides alone without children or her husband. She likes the calm and the beauty. She likes to hike. Uh, Secretary Udall was a big cheerleader for Lady Bird. Uh, he praised how her efforts um, 
to have trees and flowers planted all around D.C. was making a big uh, difference in the appearance of the city. But although Lady Bird had already lived in D.C. By, for decades, by the time she became First Lady, she hadn't been involved in local land use advocacy or projects. This is done uh, as a West Wing-approved effort, right? She goes on tours of D.C. neighborhoods that she's never seen. She goes out and she talks to people. She understands that one-and-done funding won't work. Projects need sustainable funding. Bird, as her husband called her, knew that by the mid-60s it was no longer possible to do um, only projects in tourist or wealthy areas of D.C. and to ignore the neighborhoods in poverty, neighborhoods uh, of people of color. That she really, to be politically acceptable and to further his civil rights agenda, she has to be going into these neighborhoods with her work. And she's comfortable doing that. She favors giving people in neighborhood the means to improve their own surroundings. She very much believes that our neighborhoods and our surroundings have a large impact on our life, as I said before. Um, and she acts like a cross between a nonprofit director and an honorary chair in terms of her involvement. She has lots of fingers and many pies. Um, remember that when we start Johnson's term as, as president, D.C. does not have home rule yet. If you want to read an excellent book about D.C. history, read Chocolate City. Um, it goes back to colonial times, actually even pre-colonial times, uh, into de detail and about governance of D.C., its relationship with Congress and its black and immigrant communities. Uh, so working closely with Lady Bird, kind of pushing her, opening her eyes, are a few different people. Uh, we have Walter Washington, who later became the first black mayor, the first mayor of Washington, D.C. He's not the first mayor, but he's the first, I think he is the first mayor. I think there was a mayor earlier on. Um, but he's the first one under home rule. We have Polly Shackleton, who was a member of the D.C. Democratic Central Committee um, and a member of the Democratic National Committee, uh, a staff employee of the American Institute of Architects. And we have Catherine Graham, who became the publisher of the Washington Post, her family business, later when her husband dies. And they're all heavyweights. Uh, Washington is of her Lady Bird's generation. Uh, in 65, he's 50 years old. He had grown up in upstate New York in Jamestown, New York, Lucille Ball's hometown. He went to college at Howard University. Um, and like many men before him, even LBJ, he married up, so to speak, when he wed the daughter of a leading D.C. congressman. I mean, clergyman. I am just misgoing here. He, me he marries the daughter of a leading D.C. clergyman. And he instantly becomes, uh, as uh, a college graduate and as this husband, he instantly becomes part of the black establishment of the city. And his wife is also committed to and works for racial equality. Walter Washington uses, and I, I put it in quotes, beautification to pursue his goals of bringing hope and local involvement and jobs to black people in D.C., 
He insists that Lady Bird see the real DC beyond the tourist government and law firm zones, beyond the wealthy neighborhoods, um, to the neighborhoods and people in support, in need of support, the people who live in grim, gray, uh, sometimes even kind of almost destroyed places. He's ready to respond to Lady Bird's many questions when they go on these excursions. Um, and if Lady Bird wants to have flowers planted, great. He's happy to support that. Uh, but he also pushes her uh, toward stakeholder engagement, toward um, work with schools, toward summer jobs, toward public housing. Uh, and he works to avoid the criticism that money is going to go to only superficial projects. But then uh, uh, Washington gets offered a job, a prominent job um, in New York. Uh, and he leaves and in comes Polly Shackleton. She's also of similar age at 55. She's lived in D.C. for over 25 years, and she's well-connected with the local and national Democratic Party. She would really love something, and I'm sure Washington would have as well, like the WPA, but she knows that such a substantive large program and the money to start and sustain it is politically impossible as we enter 1966. Uh, but while Shackleton and Washington work for more job training and jobs uh, through a beautification program, funding is not growing. Indeed, it is disappearing. Enter stage left. Stephen Currier. Looks like we have a knight in shining armor coming along. Currier and his wife have what is known as real money. <laughs> he grows up pretty wealthy, well-to-do, very well-educated in private schools. He goes to Horace Mann in Manhattan, if you know the private schools of Manhattan. But his wife is from the super-rich. Excuse me. She's the oldest grandchild of Paul Mellon and a great-grandchild of Andrew Mellon, the one who started and funded the National Museum of Art. need my coffee today. My throat's going a little bit. Okay. Um, Stephen Currier and his wife met as students uh, when she was a student at Radcliffe. He was at Harvard. This is before Harvard admitted women. In the mid-60s, they're still in their 30s. They have three children. They've already established a foundation to give away a nice chunk of their wealth. Uh, Courier, Stephen Courier, became very involved in civil rights organizing, urban economic opportunity, and voting rights. And as the song, If I Were a Rich Man, uh, proclaims, money talks, right? If you have money, prominent people listen to you, whether you really know what you're talking about or not. So Courier has a seat at the proverbial table with Martin Luther King, with the president, etc., because of this money and because he's willing to invest it in civil rights. 
One of the Rockefellers had connected Lady Bird to Currier, and in 1966, Stephen Currier asked Lady Bird to host um, the Urban America Conference entitled Our People and Their Cities at the White House. There's now been race riots in several American cities, though not up to that point in D.C. There's people clamoring across urban America for job programs. There's rallies in D.C. demanding home rule. So Lady Bird must continue connecting beautification to civil rights. And Courier agrees. Julia Swig in her book, Hiding in Plain Sight, makes the point that the 1965 Urban Conference could afford to avoid could afford to avoid explicitly grappling with race or mentioning race. But by 1966, this is politically impossible. The times are changing, and they are changing fast, and what is considered um, politically correct is changing with the times. Courier commits $100,000 for a plan to be drafted by a quote-unquote top-ranking landscape architect, basically giving such a professional free reign to imagine things like pocket parks, excuse me, pocket parks, or the entirety of the area on the Anacostia River um, to reimagine these places. And for those of you who do not know D.C. or its history, uh, these were, these had been, and some continue to be, uh, black neighborhoods uh, where people do not earn a lot of money. In 1966, this certainly included the neighborhood of Shaw, but it still includes those uh, neighborhoods beyond the Anacostia. And Courier selects uh, this landscape architect, Lawrence Halperin. And we will leave now, and in episode three, we will return to Lady Bird's planning efforts in Washington. We will explore Halperin a little bit. And then we will go on uh, back to Jackie Kennedy Onassis once again. Thank you so much for listening today. Uh, get links to resources at our website. Uh, contribute your thoughts on social media. I wish you a wonderful couple of weeks. Uh, we will be back. I promise you some fun stuff uh, in episode three of this trilogy. And be well, enjoy your coffee or tea, your sleep, if we've put you to sleep. And uh, that's all I'll say. Bye-bye.
Harry. 